Language. We can't escape it. But what happens when language doesn't do an experience justice? And what are the consequences of language omission? We will explore these topics in this lecture. Let's get started. Language is probably the most clear form of representation, right? As Anderson says on page 124, um, Language, spoken language, stands in for objects, feelings, practices, and events, like a lawyer stands in for a defendant. Um, so what this is saying that we aren't actually, um, we aren't actually able to give people the experience that we experienced. We're not able to give them the sensation of sitting in a chair or flying a kite or dancing with somebody you love. We aside from actually being in those shoes and, and performing that act, the closest thing that we can do is describe it in some way through language. And inherently, uh, this is a representation of something, but it always fails to capture the essence, the true essence of what we are trying to convey. Anderson goes on to say, however, language is more than simply representation. It is a multi-sensory experience. We can consider the type of language that cultural groups speak, what words they choose to communicate their ideas, and what words they bring into existence through these vocabularies. We can also consider what these languages sound like. We can respond to their dialect, tone, and accent. Language can therefore be a product of culture Language can be written to identify, transform, and give the last word on how we think about the world, but language is also a practice. It is a medium to communicate culture, forming our identity and locating where we are and where we're from. Language is therefore vital to understanding our cultural world. Language is inseparable from political, cultural, and economic landscapes. Language, therefore, is fundamental. Um, it is a fundamental cultural component. It's one of the key sort of building blocks of, of culture. As Anderson says, languages shape our cultural world. Um, to paraphrase Valentin, language can change the way that spaces are bordered. And languages, therefore, place us. They give us uh, ways of communicating our cultural worldview and we make sense of the world through languages. So how do languages place us? Um, I can think of a few examples of this. They place us through our regional dialect, right? A dialect is the way that we speak English, for example, differently within the United States. Um, there's, you know, sort of the Louisiana or New Orleans dialect. Um, whereas that might be dramatically different than the Boston dialect. And then that might be even different from what we might understand here in the Midwest. Um, we can sort of hear those nuances. Um, or, um, you know, folks who live in the UK speak English even with a different dialect. And so we kind of understand that these are place-based dialects, whereas accents uh, for example, are the way that 
um, when I speak Spanish, my people who, the people who I'm speaking Spanish to recognize that I have an English accent or an American English accent um, underneath my Spanish. So I'm speaking Spanish with an accent. That means I don't speak in, uh, Spanish properly. So that's the difference between accent and dialect. Uh, just a useful note there. Uh, back to languages, they also give meaning to place. And this chapter is full of really cool examples about how language um, gives meaning to place in different ways in different cultures. For example, I like on page 125, um, Anderson talks about the Boro language spoken in northeastern India as parts of Bhutan, Nepal, and, and also in Bangladesh. Um, the, the word, um, there's a word here for to love for the last time. And I think that that's an interesting idea to have love, love something for the last time or to know that you're gonna love something for the last time. There's a sense of longing, you know, um, in this word that we don't necessarily have. Um, it's, it's multifaceted and it's able to convey um, an experience, a finality in, in a way that I don't understand in English, right? It's gonna take me a whole paragraph or two paragraphs to explain something that this one borrow word can summarize and convey. How else do languages place us? Um, another, another example Anderson mentions is uh, Hiroth, I think is close approximation to how you say the word, it's Welsh. And that word means for the Welsh, that quote, that sense of belonging or homesickness that Welsh people feel in their hearts when a long way from the valleys of the south or the mountains of the north. So it's a specific, a specific homesickness or longing for the physical geography, the, the, the place, um, the landscape of the Welsh countryside, right? So this is a very place and culturally um, specific sense of longing you know we have the sense of homesickness here um, in the united states and in english generally right we understand what it means to be homesick but to be homesick for specific landscapes is a bit um curious to me it's it's new i don't have a word in my language that describes a homesickness for a specific landscape I might want to come up with one now. I think that's pretty fascinating, but I don't, I don't have it. So that's an example of how languages place us, right? Um, specifically with the Welsh example, there's a word for homesickness that is relative directly to a place, a location, a physical location on this planet. It's specific to a place. And I, and, I think if we looked long and hard enough, we would find um, examples littered throughout different cultures of this sort of place-based connections. Um, although some more so than others, as we're seeing, it's not universal, but 
it is um, not uncommon, in other words. And so what happens if languages like this are lost? What happens if this language is being omitted intentionally? So it's being um, blocked or erased or silenced in other ways. These languages or words, Anderson says, are not simply decorative embellishments for poets or playwrights. They are tools uh, with which cultures communicate what is important to them. The things and practices which are not named, in other words, are effectively silenced. The message is sent by omission that these experiences are not important because we do not speak of them. Thus, words create worlds. If we don't have a word for it, how can we articulate it? If we cannot articulate it, how can we mobilize around it? If we cannot mobilize around it, how can we change the world? What's a good example of this? What's a clear example of this? On page 129 of the text, Anderson begins to talk about the nation-building practice of the United States. He talks about how um, the U.S. government, in an attempt to homogenize and build nationalism around the expanding nation-state of the United States in the 19th century, there was a overt, there was a clearly defined strategy to eliminate other languages, specifically indigenous languages to this, to this continent, um, to erase those languages. Um, on 129, Anderson quotes um, Abley in saying that in 1868, a federal commission on Indian affairs in the United States released a report urging that rapid steps be taken to abolish Indian languages. Quote, through the sameness of language is produced sameness of sentiment and thought. It read, therefore, the Indians, quote, barbarous dialect should be blotted out and the English language substituted, end quote. So this is a direct representation of political will of 19th century United States government, right? How is this being played out in, in more tangible terms? Well, right here in Lawrence, there's what is now a university um, called Haskell Indian Nations University. And this school was established in 1884, 1884. So not long after this federal commission, right? It some 16 odd years. And I can see a link here between the founding of this, um, of this institute and this federal commission. So what did the Haskell um, School do at the time? It was named Haskell Institute for quite some time. So um, 
specifically, there was a very heavy involvement of the military. And I have found uh, an article here that explains the legacy of Haskell Indian Nations University. And it says that the quote, the federal policy applied to tribal nations during the late 19th century was assimilation. Assimilation, meaning the federal government was trying to make indigenous peoples become um, European, in other words, or more European or more American in some way. The policy strictly forbade tribal peoples from displaying their tribal cultures, their songs, dances, and tribal languages. So using military tactics as a form of compliance, these same policies of assimilation were applied to tribal students attending Haskell. So the rub here was actually students were forcibly taken, um, and, and by students I'm saying um, young indigenous people, were taken from their parents forcibly, mostly. Um, they were forced to cut their hair, to change their clothes, they had to often burn their own items and um, they were forbidden from pr practicing song, dance, and specifically language, right, from their own cultures. So why was the US government so bent on erasing indigenous knowledges and indigenous languages. And I just made a slip there in that um, languages are also constitutive of knowledge. They form, um, they form knowledge, right? Um, we study the world through language, but also they form um, and constitute identity. And this identity is very place-based, I argue. And and also, um, Anderson argues on page 128 that we use language differently in different places. And so by kind of ripping indigenous peoples out of their, of their land um, over the years, right, um, they were first eradicated and fought um, on the East Coast of the United States and of course all across the what is now the Caribbean and Latin America by the Spanish and Portuguese. Um, but later um, in, in North America and what is now the United States, uh, people, indigenous peoples were um, forced to move further west. Uh, the Trail of Tears is a legacy of this. Um, Andrew Jackson, the president who presided over that process. Um, but then also, um, yeah, once they even came to these schools, were forced to come to these schools, they were forced to use different languages. Um, so quoting Anderson here, using language differently in different places suggests that we have a spatial division of language, which tightly coincides with a spatial division of identity. And so he's arguing here that we are, uh, we have different identities for different places. And I would suggest that you probably speak differently in my class than you might on social media or with your friends in your dorm or you know, at your apartment. So different aspects of ourself are articulated in different locations and often different languages, accents and words are used by these different selves in different sites.
So when we're in, in these different places, we are modifying our own identity, are modifying our own expression and representation of the world, likely because there is some sort of dominating power which is presiding over us in these spaces, right? At school, we're subject to dominating powers, um, and, and at work, you know, um, or even on the street, particularly. Um, I often see folks here in Lawrence who um, are maybe are experiencing homelessness or, or people who have um, psychological disabilities or are experiencing some sort of sickness um, or mental illness. And, and they're often in the streets, you know, kind of yelling at public and engaging in sort of a language practice that is outside of what we consider to be normal. Is it inherently dangerous or wrong to do that? Um, no, not necessarily, but it does create kind of a disturbance in what we accept, what we accept to be the normal. So language then, um, really begins to form our identity how it, it, it positions us, right? It gives us a way to represent ourselves relative to other people and other people's experiences. Well, I know that you represent yourself this way. I represent myself this in a different way. Um, and we experience the same thing in our own unique ways. And so through language, I'm able to form my own identity about um, what I like relative to what you like, relative to what somebody else likes. Um, and so, yeah, it's constitutive at a very innate level of how we identify with our own body, with our own ego, um, and with the world around us.